So let me give you a little bit of a sense. Pat Tberry, great friend of this group, and um, uh, now back in Columbus, Ohio, he uh, he decided to step out early, as we know. And I was minding my own business at the tax policy subcommittee, really enjoying it. Robust work, obviously, coming through on the other side of um, the tax bill, and you know, feeling pretty good about 2.0 and all those sorts of things. And then the Pat's vacancy occurred. And I spoke with the chairman and decided to take on this responsibility. And in some ways, in taking on the responsibility, if you come into the healthcare debate, many of you have been marinating in the healthcare debate for years, but if you kind of come into it with a fresh eye, what I observed, what there, there's, there's really no more deadline-driven policy area in domestic policy in the United States than healthcare. Healthcare really, at a ways and means level, has been lurching from one deadline to another for quite a long time. Now, a lot of that got taken care of in the Bipartisan Budget Act a few months ago. Some of the deadlines got cleared out. But it did seem to me like we at the committee spend an extraordinary amount of time navigating through deadlines, and the deadlines matter. So said another way, if, if the Ways and Means Committee or if Congress blows some... Uh, some reimbursement deadline, and somebody has a stroke, she doesn't get the therapies she needs, and this is a devastating consequence. So we've got to be mindful of the deadlines, but if all we are doing is talking deadlines, we're really going to be underperforming. So we've got a deadline, or we had a deadline, and that was August. We're going to be gone. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> and looking at the August recess as a backstop, it became clear, all right, there, there's one deadline that, that is certain. So let's look in, a, in, a, in an election year. We've got this amount of time to basically <coughs> move some traffic. And then we need to be thinking more aspirationally about the, the health debate generally. So what we did was we came up with two goals. One is re regulatory relief, which I'm going to touch on in a second, and the other is trying to deal with opioids, like a lot of other, a lot of other institutions in the House are trying to deal with the opioid crisis. On the regulatory relief discussion, it's fascinating to me. What we are trying to do is to pose a different question. Because if you ask any member of Congress what their view is on the Affordable Care Act, they will unfortunately tell you, because it goes right to shirts and skins immediately. I mean, you're right at sharks and jets. You can hardly talk to one another, and everybody does their, I love it, I hate it, and so forth. And it's just not helpful. It's just not productive at this time. So what we're trying to do is to pose a different question on a bipartisan basis at Ways and Means. And here's the different question. Let's all, both sides of the aisle, go to healthcare providers and ask them, what are the regulations that are making you crazy? What are the regulations that add no value to any patient, that add no value to the bottom line? And the more time I spend learning about this issue, the more I'm realizing that some of these things are just discouraging from a healthcare provider. It's like, um, you know, it, 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 it's busy work. It's nonsense. It's, it's fruitless. So what are those sorts of things? I had this discussion in suburban Chicago with one of the healthcare systems that I represent, and I asked them, okay, what are the regulations that are making me crazy? And they go, oh, we got one. And they told me a story about a Medicare ins uh, inspector who had come through one of the facilities. Top drawer facility, by the way. Can we just stipulate that? Any one of you would be pleased to 
cared for here, any one of you. They go in, and the inspector does a whole inspection of the place, and the inspector says, uh, you got a problem with your HVAC system. And they said, what? We don't, what? A problem with our HVAC system? Oh, yeah, you got a problem with your HVAC system. Well, what, what's our problem? I mean, the, the fire people have been in here, and the health people have been here. Everybody's in here. They all signed off on it and, and so forth. Oh, no, no, no. That shaft there is 18 inches too close to something. They're like, it's not 18 inches too close. We like win awards. This thing is, this is great. No, no, no. You got to move it. A million and a half dollars later, they move this. Okay, that audible gasp that you just experienced. Now multiply that like a zillion times in our system. And it, you, you see how, you see how, just how, how outrageous it is. It's pretty scandalous, actually. We can do better than that. And so, on a bipartisan basis, the health subcommittee, this is something Pat Tiberi initiated, but it just kind of got crowded out on tax reform. The, the, the subcommittee reached out and went to providers and said, let's uh, tell us what these things are. And now what we're doing, we've had three roundtables, a physician group, a hospital group, post-care group, and they've given us feedback from these 500 suggestions. And in, the, and in the roundtables, actually, these groups have been very easy to direct. I've said, don't waste our time telling us how bad things are. We get it. Let's use all this time forward-looking, what can we do about it? And we're dividing these things into two columns, you can imagine, the things that CMS can do and the CMS things that CMS can't do. That's sort of the pivot point for now. And what we're doing is we're, we are in the process of creating a body of work, and we intend to move forward um, on this basis. Chairman Brady has been incredibly supportive of this and, and really creating a pathway for us. And I think what, what we're trying to do is on the health de debate is to have a different discussion, at least for a while. Because just the, the ACA orthodoxy versus heresy discussion, it has not been particularly productive. And if we can get to this point where both sides of the aisle are turning to providers, we can get, we, we can get feedback that's really substantive. And that can become a virtuous cycle. Can you imagine if we were able to, and I think we're going to be able to get this done, we're able to take on a regulatory relief effort and get it, get, get it moving through and you change a little bit of the dynamic, the sort of the, the follow-along that comes as a result of that. So that's, that's one thing that we're doing. Second thing that we're doing is, like so many others, have taken on uh, the opioid crisis in our in our jurisdiction. We had a hearing that was fascinating to me. We brought in Governor Scott of Vermont, a leader in this area. Their their trend lines are at least going in the right direction, where the rest of the world's a hockey stick going the wrong way in terms of opioid deaths. We brought in some other smart people on the second panel. As well, they're doing creative, interesting things. And here's the most interesting part of this hearing. There was no hubris on the part of any of the members of Congress. Nobody. No one was saying, oh, if you'd only done it my way. Oh, if we only did this. Oh, your, your plan is bad. There was none of that. It was, there, was, there was humility on the part of the members, both sides of the aisle and they were listening. Our members were in feedback mode. Teach us about this. What do we have to learn? Because if this molecule gets in you, there's a lot of power in that. 
and we got to make sure that we're not putting people at risk. And the more I've, more time I've spent studying on this, the more I realize this hits really close to home to a lot of people. I mean, like, if, if national average is, it's hitting the four walls of this room right now at home or, you know, quickly extended family, this thing is completely for real. It is merciless. It is aggressive. And there's no clean hands on this. There's just no clean hands. So if you look back, uh, there's government policies that, are, that were absolutely driving this. When we, you know, when the federal government is evaluating healthcare providers on how they treat pain, guess what? They're going to make pain go away. And when, when it's pain is treated as a fifth vital sign and, you know, smiley faces and sad faces and all that sort of stuff, this is the net result of that. Pharma's got a lot to answer for, obviously. Healthcare providers have a lot to answer for. Sometimes they've not wanted to do the underlying work, and they haven't wanted to deal with the real problem of a patient, and they've just written a script to make a patient go away. And we as a public have a lot to answer for. We put tremendous pressure on our healthcare providers. We don't like pain. I don't like pain. You don't like pain. And we go to these positions, and we say, Doc, get me out of this. Well, when we put all that pressure on them, sometimes we put ourselves at risk as a result. So, that's the past. And it's worth taking a glance at the past, but let's not, let's not spend all our time. The, you know, the, the, these things are gonna be litigated elsewhere. There's another, there's another notion, too, that I think we've gotta fall, uh, walk away from the idea that we're gonna pass the Opioid Relief Act of 2018. And then as a result of that, we're gonna say, not it, and, and, and everything's gonna be great. That is not the way this is gonna happen. What's going to happen is we're gonna do good work. Other committees of jurisdiction are gonna do good work. But this is all cumulative. They're, we're gonna learn more things as we go along. But I'll make a prediction. I think in 10 years, we're going to be able to look back and say our country was in a crisis in these years, and in 10 years, we are going to be a much, we're going to be much better off. I, I really think that's the general direction that we're going. Because this is a situation where the more people know, the more intentional they can be about avoidance in the first place, and everybody can kind of understand what the ground rules are and what the expectations are. But we've got, we've got a lot of sorting out to do, and we've got a lot of science to learn, we've got a lot of medicine to learn. And my view is let's 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 be forward leaning and and uh, and instead of uh, just looking back and, and, and pointing fingers because there really is not much of a percentage. <laughs> then if you shift and look at where the Ways and Means Committee is in terms of tax reform 2.0, for example, I I really appreciate the way Chairman Brady has framed this up. In other words, it, it's we don't have to. This doesn't have to be a once in a generation enterprise. That can only happen, you know, when the full moon and the right, you know, the right tilt of the wind and all that sort of stuff, which is what happened this time. Let's be honest. Uh, what 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 the chairman is saying is we we need to update this more frequently, and we've got to take a look at things that that are no longer competitive, and let's let's fix them, let's update them. So you're going to see a lot of effort on the permanent side in terms of uh, the individual. Rates, that's going to be a, a focal point. You're going to also see a level of discussion on retirement. How is it that we can encourage people to retire earlier? I'll just give you one quick example. I know it's only an anecdote, but it, it really made a strong impression on me. My oldest daughter got her first job 
And, you know, she's like, the other kid, you're filling out all your stuff and checking boxes and, you know. So she fills out all their stuff. And then at the end of the year, she gets a statement from her employer. And it's some dollar sum in it with her name on it and her social security number. And she called me up. It's like, well, what's this? That's your money. That is your money. And for her, this was like manna from heaven. This was like, what a delight. Wow, my money. And now she is a saver. She's saving like she's 59 years old. <laughs> into these accounts. We've got to create that. You know, we've got to, if, if, if we have more younger people doing that earlier, saving more aggressively and so forth, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make subsequent policymakers, it's going to make their lives a lot easier um, than, if we, than if we don't. And the tax code can play a role in that. So um, keep an eye out for, for 2.0. Um, tax extender, you know, the, the, the tax extenders debate is, in a, is a debate that's just kind of completely miserable. There's a, new, there's a new discussion around tax extenders, and I very much appreciate Vernon Buchanan as the chairman of the tax policy subcommittee. What he's doing is challenging folks and saying, look, we did tax reform. And let's put things into, into a couple camps. We should either talk to you about making things permanent, or they should just go away, which is provocative. I, I think it's great. Provoke. Let, let's find out. And Byrne's question that we had at a, at a hearing that he led was, hey, the tax rate's at 21%. What are you talking about? Why is it that somebody needs a tax extender in that environment? Again, it's meant to provoke a discussion. And there's some people that can come up with a decent answer, and there's others that just avoid eye contact. It's <laughs> like they've got another text from their mother. So um, that's, a little bit, uh, that's a little bit about the state of play at the Ways and Means Committee. The meeting that we're going to have in a, uh, a few minutes on, uh, on the uh, immigration debate, well, everything I'm sure that you read about it will all be true. Um, it's uh, you know, pretty tumultuous time and in, in trying to sort that out. I represent a constituency in suburban Chicago that is a very common sense, get it done sort of constituency. And they have a real interest in seeing that the DACA, the young, young uh, people that are caught up as uh, in the DACA situation are taken care of. And they also want to see our border made more secure. So we'll see if there's a, a pathway to um, come up with some reasonable approach on that. But with that, can we open it up, Jim, for easy questions? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the aluminum and steel tariffs. We've got the G7 going on in Canada, all of that. Can you give us your thoughts on trade? Yeah, I'm very concerned about the direction that the uh, administration is going on trade. I think that um, it's a mercantilist worldview, and it's not productive for, for Chicagoland. I represent a trade-oriented constituency. We make things, we bend metal, we sell this all over the world, um, not just on the manufacturing side, but on the food production side. And, I mean, there's a lot of it, and a lot of the transportation sector runs through Chicagoland as well. Um, I was surprised over the weekend at these latest moves, and I think, I'll just give you an example. So I've got a constituent company that I was in to see them, and they, um, they said, okay, they, they import specialty steel from Sweden. They showed me the letter. The letter came from their Swedish uh, suppliers that said, okay, this 25% is all on you, first of all. 
And then the disadvantage that my that my constituent companies have is twofold. Number one, they 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 are disadvantaged vis-a-vis -vis that individual sale. And during this drama of staring one another down, let's even assume for the sake of argument that this ends well. It doesn't end well for that sale. That sale is gone, and you never get that sale again. And then as it relates to that that customer, they're also disadvantaged because now a competitor is able to come in and a smart competitor can come in and say, not only can we offer you this, but we can offer this, that, and the other thing. And, and that, that market access is, is, um, is lost. I hope cooler heads prevail. Um, and I'm very concerned about this. It, it's, it's mercantilism. We are not mercantilists. We are free traders. And now look, I'm willing to acknowledge that these need to be revisited and these need to be updated. But my sense of priorities would be focus first on what's happening with, with the Chinese in particular and let's get a modernized, updated NAFTA. Modernized, updated NAFTA, is, it's not a foregone conclusion that that can't happen, but it becomes more difficult in, in this environment. So I would, I would have charted a very different path. But what can Congress do in the trade space if they want to send a signal that says, enough, we want you to do it this way? And so the remedies are pretty, are, 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 are fairly, um, fairly tepid, actually. I mean, so, you, okay, so game it out. You can change the underlying statute that requires the president to sign it, and the, the odds of that happening are, are, are low. Um, what we're trying to do in the absence of that, so the underlying bill, or you know, the, the trade statutes were created to, to give presidents the ability to ease up on tariffs, not really to go heavier on tariffs. I wasn't here, but it seems to me that like, that was sort of the design, that they could, they could adjust the dials a little bit. But it was always adjusting the dials to make a deal better, and not to adjust the dials to really Come in. But he's got the authority clearly to do that. So is it likely to get um, that, that Donald Trump is going to sign a bill that relinquishes his authority? You tell me. Um, <laughs> then if he's not going to do that, then what are the what are the persuasive things that, that the House can do? The persuasive things are the consultation. So we're going to be meeting with um, Ambassador Lighthizer. We've had many of these meetings. What you will notice is as a close observer of this process, the echoing that was happening during tax reform between the administration and Ways and Means in particular and Senate Finance, the hand-in-glove sort of approach on that is completely absent now. There is no, um, you know, even in the chairman's statements, it, a tortured look at something complimentary in, you know, the president's announcement would be something like, well, I guess, you know, the, the subject-verb agreement was right in the press release. <laughs> it's a good start. No punctuation. <laughs> um, and so you, uh, you take my point. There's, there's, this is persuasion. And I think the people that are going to be ultimately the most persuasive on this uh, is American agri agriculture. American agriculture, you talk to the ag folks, they get ashen-faced at the idea of this. And, and this notion that a huge part of President's constituency um, now finds themselves locked out of markets, their inability to, to, to sell into these places, um, it doesn't end well. So my view is, I hope that there is some element of um, uh, 
a next move here that you and I are just not seeing. They're like, there's a plan here. <laughs> uh, and that we quickly pull back and, and, and get this right. Because we are the beneficiaries of these trade deals. And with, just without question, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau came in to see the Ways and Means Committee a few, uh, it was in the fall, and it was an interesting meeting, and it's an unusual thing for a head of state to come and talk to a congressional committee, obviously, but you know, he knew the audience, and, and the presentation that he made was interesting, and then he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but his basic argument was, we know we've got to update NAFTA. I think he specifically mentioned dairy and IP. Don't hold my feet to the fire. But it was basically, we know we need to update this, but then kind of a dramatic pause. But you sell a lot of things in my country. And we do. If you're from Chicagoland, you're selling a lot of things up in, up in Canada. And we've got to make sure that that part of the story um, gets told. What's interesting is I, I'm told that the polling in terms of NAFTA and sort of support for NAFTA is going up. You could Five years ago, you couldn't hear a, a kind word about NAFTA. If NAFTA was choking on the side of the street, people would walk up and say, I don't think you're going to make it. <laughs> so I think that there's a um, it, it, the trade disposition is changing a little bit, and that's a good thing. We, so the last point, we who believe in free trade, this big lesson is, we've got to articulate this. We've got to talk about the benefits. And we cannot rely on the, on the assumption that these things are intuitive. They're not intuitive. And that's self-evident they're not intuitive. But the more we're able to talk about the benefits of them, I think the more ease it gives to people moving forward. Because this is very important for the future of our country. We've got to win this trade debate in the same way in HR1. We won the debate about whether we want growth or a zero-sum game.